We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. where we are talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me, as always, my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up, world? We have got some things to talk about today. Man, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's not all peaches and cream. Unfortunately, we, we are just completely inundated by new headlines every single week. Uh, but we're not here to be Debbie Downers. If you're new to the show, the new normal is about taking the mentality of the uh, bad side of the new normal, thinking about things from that negative perspective and saying, well, this is just the new normal. We got to get used to it. We want to take that new normal and flip it on its head. Talk about current events. Talk about what's happening in the world. Talk about the pandemic. Talk about COVID from a point of view that we can shape the new normal into something that can be beneficial, not only for entrepreneurs, but for folks who are interested in homesteading and getting financially prepared so that when the next crisis happens, when the next downturn happens, they're in a much better place, not only mentally, but physically, spiritually, and have just a general preparedness. So we want to thank you for joining us again. We have a special guest joining us one more time, Mr. Myron Bowman, we thank you so much for joining us. We had a great conversation with Myron on episode five. If you didn't check that out, please head over to newnormalpod.com where you can listen to that episode along with a few other interviews that we've done so far. We've got some amazing guests line up this week, Quentin. We have Hans Johnson. This is like the get for me right now. Hans Johnson is going to be joining the show. He's the author of The True Wealth Formula, which we are also giving away two free copies of his new book, The True Wealth Formula, on our website. If you go to newnormalpod.com forward slash TWF, you can sign up to the newsletter where we will put your name in a drawing. And when Hans is on, we'll see how many names we have at the time. And if we have enough, I think uh, we might get Hans to draw the name. Excuse me. If not, we will just, uh, we'll, we'll keep collecting names, Quentin. <laughs> and then we'll give the, those two books away on, on our Facebook page or on the website. Sounds good. We also have a couple other interesting guests that are going to be coming up. We have congressional candidate, speaker, author, and friend of, the show. friend of the show, big friend of the show, Mr. James Simpson is going to be joining us this week. So you want to tune in for that. Uh, of course, you can download this on Spotify, iTunes, Google, wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. We want to thank you again for joining us on The New Normal. Quentin, you've got some stuff that you want to get off your chest, don't you? Yeah, man. I'm awaiting uh, the arrival of Tracker Jacker. I mean, I'm sorry, a murder hornets. <clears throat> from Could, Asia. I want to know which one of our listeners, which one of you was it that said 
2020 couldn't get any worse. Yeah. Got the, the hornets that are going to kill. Exactly. And lo and behold, where are these uh, murder hornets coming from? China. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I, a lot of people I talk to at a distance. All right. A lot of people I talked to uh, over the weekend were like, uh, just not social distancing. There was cars everywhere. I'm in a small town. There were just cars wall to wall, people out just getting food and, and like business as usual. Most of me is like, man, that's so, you know, we need to get our economy online. But then I started del- delving into kind of like what the policy is going forward. And it seems like the government thinks that we need to achieve herd immunity before the vaccine comes out. So what does that mean? I, I, this is an unknown headline. People aren't looking into this, but this should be big news. And so it means about 70% of people need to contract this virus to have herd immunity. So what that looks like in the United States at our current case fatality rate, and our current case fatality rate is right around 6%. It's a little under 6%. It's, it's quite high. And if you look at what that means, according to the CDC, it's like the end of the world as you know it, according to their old documents. Um, so if 70% of the United States, now this is without mitigations. Now we're going to get to the mitigations in a second because Texas is lifting most mitigations to be quite honest. And Sal kind of pointed that out in the governor's executive order. It's very vague and gives really no, you know, no real guidance on the situation. Well, you also so, have President Trump who's no longer going to be supporting the federal guidelines coming this week. That's interesting. So at 70% contraction, and if this case fatality rate holds at 6%, which it won't, it will go up. Um, that's 15.12 million dead Americans. That's huge. And no one's talking about that. In Texas, we're pretty much lifting most of the restrictions. People think, oh, well, the heat kills the virus and all and that. None of that's been proven true. It's also not been proven true whether antibodies protect you or not. And some of these uh, tests, the antibody tests, apparently from, I have from good sources that they're molecular-based tests and that if they're just stored in the same container, these tests with a positive, basically, in the same container, that they can have a false positive. I don't know how that's possible. I don't have all the details on that. But I got that information from somebody I trust. We'll see if that's true or not. I'm not claiming that it is. But if... 70% of the state of Texas contracts this virus, and it seems like that's very possible before the vaccine ever comes out. You're looking at 1.587 million deaths in the state of Texas alone. So that's more than the city of San Antonio, dead. And that's without mitigations. Now, that's not to say that a second wave, which is almost all but inevitable now, won't entail mitigations in itself, right? Like if we have a second wave, mitigations might come again. They might be even more strict next time. That could even that could could be even more problematic to the small business situation. It might just exacerbate an already bad situation. So Other Courtney, headlines people are talking about though. I'm gonna wrap this up. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say back up to the the case fatality rate. So a lot of back and forth has been going on about it, right? So this is not as deadly as as People have been saying the CDC just lowered their death count from, what was it, 60,000 to 30,000. They chopped it in half. So when we yeah. talk about case fatality rate, what are we, what are we saying in terms of the, the narratives that are the dueling narratives at this point? So, yeah, there, there's two different narratives. And in, in the narrative that it's not as bad supports the reopening, which, look, <clears throat> 
the cure can't be worse than the virus. We keep hearing that. Well, the virus will be a lot worse than the cure if it kills over 15 million people. I mean, the country's just not going to recover from that. And countries who take more draconian measures and get the virus under control faster will be at an advantage to us, China being one of them. You know, they're potentially an adversarial nation. So if they get the situation under control faster than us, we lose a significant portion of our population that could help with continuation of government or defense readiness or any of those things, or we lose a significant amount of our fighting force. Well, guess what? We don't have the upper hand on them anymore. So then, you know, the, the actual reopening is worse than the, the, than, than the mitigation. So we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. If they cut the deaths down, the case fatality rate would still be around 3%. Well, that's huge. I could adjust those numbers. All we'd have to do is cut the numbers in half. And you're right about at a million people in the state of Texas dying. And then you'd be, you know, right around 7 million in the United States. So it's still extremely high. The problem is the way, I think the way they were reporting earlier, you know, a lot of people had problems with the way they were reporting. Like if you were already dying of cancer and you died of COVID, you know, your death is COVID and they wanted to get rid of that. Well, here's the thing, you know, I was in law enforcement. You have heart disease, you walk down the street and a thug caps you, you have a heart attack and die. Guess what? You didn't die from heart disease. I, I cannot label that a heart disease related death just because you had a heart attack because you got shot. Like you would have otherwise had a heart attack another day had you not been shot. Like somebody who's terminally ill with cancer could live years, you know, and not have died from something like this that could have been treated. So I don't, I don't know if I agree with the way they're reporting now. I, that being said, I don't know if I agree with the way they were reporting it to begin with. Um, so what we do know now, though, is that China lied about how severe the virus was in order to hoard PPE. And they hoarded PPE in China, and they hoarded PPE from around the world, and they ordered PPE from all of the neighboring countries. It's unclear whether they ordered from us or not, but they did mis, misrepresent the severity of the virus to acquire large amounts of PPE. We also know that the first strain of the virus they acquired, they, you know, disappeared the genetic sequencing of that and then gave us what they claim to be accurate. Now we have our own genetic sequencing, right? I don't know if it's changed or not. I doubt it. It probably hasn't. But a lot of questions are now coming out surrounding the whole Wuhan biolab and what their intents were, who they were getting funding from. We can cover that on a different show. We don't really want to talk about that tonight because that is a rabbit hole. Um, well, yeah, but keep in mind that just a month ago, if you were to say anything about the Wuhan laboratory, yeah. that you were, you, were Alex you, were, Jones. you were Alex Jones, you were labeled a conspiracy theorist, you, you were essentially shadow banned on some platforms or banned outright together. Facebook would tell you, you know, you're, you're posting fake news. This has been fact-checked. There's no... Uh, truth to this. And now you have President Trump on major networks, on major publications saying we have evidence. And then you have other uh, Secretary of Defense, not Secretary of Defense, but you, you have definitely other high-ranking members of government who are coming out saying that we have uh, oodles and oodles of evidence to support that this is coming out of a lab. A lot of, there's a lot of headlines, right, with the reopening, the protests, all of that. I don't really want to, I didn't really want to rehash all of the things that anybody could have picked up on Fox News. What they're not going to tell you is even based on the cut in numbers, the case fatality rate being adjusted, achieving herd immunity or herd immunity is going to just be extremely costly. 
And I don't know that those costs actually uh, will be absorbed by the reopening of the economy. Like, I'm not so sure that economic gains can offset losing that many people. I mean, that could be permanent. You know, it, well, it certainly would be a permanent contraction of GDP. There's just no way around that. So that that's kind of problematic. And it's we've talked about this in the past. It's like, what are we... What are you going back to work for? If you're a small business owner, that answer is very easily attainable. But you're not allowed to open, right? So they're basically just getting all the, the big box Joes, you know, and, and Sally's to go back to work for these faceless bureaucracies that don't care about them, that are part of the problem. One of the reasons our, our supply chains are so interconnected and why our economy took such a dump in the first place. They're convincing all of these people to go and basically risk their lives for stockholders, dividends, and, you know, stock prices. I mean, that's the, the only way around it. Or, I'm sorry, that's the only way to really interpret it. And uh, as a small business owner, being unable to open and losing that amount of market share to these corporations, probably permanently, especially if you go bankrupt, is completely unacceptable. If you are allowed to reopen what is going to happen to you with the demand downturn, which is it's still, I mean, we still have a lack of demand. It doesn't matter if we open up or not. The demand downturn is still going to be far greater than what any business usually incur, uh, incurs in an off season, right? So you're still not going to be operating as in business as usual. You're not going to be able to bring back all of your employees and you're potentially not even going to be able to cover your overhead and operating expenses. So that could force you into bankruptcy. It could, you know, it forces you to lay off, to fire, and it causes an unemployment insurance crisis. And it's passing the buck that the government, the American people, because we paid them for continuation of government, we paid them for defense spending, we pay them for war powers measures. They're not owning up. They're they're not keeping their side of the bargain. You know, we pay taxes, we cede some authority, they take the authority, they provide services. That's the way it works. Not doing it. the services aren't even being provided. We're being charged for what we've paid for in defense spending by big box, by big tech, and to what ends? You know, it's just basically a a consolidation of big monopoly. And the fact that our government is working with these companies is facilitating and encouraging it. It just makes them accomplices. So I wanted to pass it off to Myron. And let him just dive straight into this and what his take on this whole situation is, because we were on the same page uh, last week. We put a, a bookmark in this conversation. I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say. Welcome back to the show, Myron. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Fun to be here again. Yeah, I guess there's just one thing that's spinning around in my head. Um, yesterday, I took a little time to drive around, and I finally got to a point of such irritation, I just came home. Because this whole, there's, there's all kinds of directions I could go in, but one of the things that's, that we just talked about, the big box. So there are big box stores that are crowded more than ever. And literally, if we're going to talk about safety, they are have crossed over the threshold of safety beyond all measure. And yet, and yet, I repeat again, and yet the small stores sell, the small hometown mom and pop stores that support the local economy 
Now we can get into talking about the big manufacturer for the stockholder side of it, but um, Walmarts are packed. They're selling products as an essential business. They're selling other products that are non-essential as they've been labeled because all the small mom and pop shops have been closed carrying the same exact products. And so it's like a oxymoron. I mean, I'm driving around just looking at some of these stores and literally, like I said, they're, they're packed to the gills. So what's happening is because they've allowed these essential businesses that are carrying non-essential products to stay open, I don't see any way they can argue that, we're in a, that they're doing it for safety because the, the closure of, I'm going to say, 800 stores and allowing 20 to stay open, all they're doing is they're driving that traffic of, you know, 800 down to 20. And so I just think it's, I mean, I just, I literally did, I drove into a parking lot and I just sat there and shook my head and I'm just, I can't handle this anymore. And I drove out of the parking lot and went home and I'm like, this is where we've come to so fast. And so I can understand the cry for small business to be like, let us go back. Um, and I respect that. What is concerning is, is that a lot of the bigger manufacturers are doing it. People are basically being forced back to work. Or I, I, I just was reading an article actually on Amazon today about they're sending out emails now saying, we're not going to make you come back. It's not going to hurt your status if you don't. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. And just as a, a testament to that, you know, driving through a small town America here in, in deep east texas when when the governor essentially opened us back up on may 1st it really did look like things were back to normal to a certain degree and you you go into the big box store you go into walmart and yes it's it's packed people aren't following the the arrows myself included because it's just not a part of my normal routine it's not a part of going down an aisle a specific way so you just grab what you need on the end of the aisle and then you look down, you realize, oh crap, I'm I'm breaking the rules now, right? The quote unquote rules of going down an aisle a certain way. And we're expecting society to just automatically conform the next day. And and it happened here locally overnight. I mean, w- one day we're we're at Walmart and you know, you you're still supposed to be socially distancing. You're only letting one family member in at a time. You come in the next day, boom, they've got these stickers on the floor and and they're expecting you to go one way and there's no enforcement of it. There's absolutely no enforcement. I I, I don't even know how you enforce it. Maybe in a larger population, you have someone in each aisle that's sitting there like a club bouncer saying, no, you have to turn around. But it just seems relatively pointless to me. And then you go into these restaurants that are now starting to open up and their servers are being forced to wear the same mask. And we're going to start seeing a whole lot more servers passing out because they're just breathing in CO2 all day. And they're wearing the same gloves all day. Makes no sense. I heard a story recently, one, one restaurant, and I'm sure there's many of them, they're wearing the same gloves, but they're telling their servers to use hand sanitizer on the gloves. And I'm just sitting here shaking my head, scratching my head saying, what is, why? What is even the point? It's just kind of absurd. You know, if you if you look back at our responses in the Cold War, I wasn't alive. Nobody on this podcast was alive for it. But, you know, I, I know what I've read about Cuban Missile Crisis and the bomber gap and that, you know, epic in history. 
And, you know, people were really scared and they, they built fallout shelters in the backyard, right? Well, the government had civil defense rations. You can still find these cans all over the place because the government made so many. Most of the food of them is still good, you know, but they were, they were just produced in mass and the government gave them to the civilians in mass, just millions and millions of these defense rations. And, you know, the government took it upon themselves to, to assume responsibility for the well-being of the citizens if we had been attacked. And this wasn't just a nuclear, this wasn't just a possibility of a nuclear attack. You know, the Soviets had bioweapons, we had bioweapons, they had chemical weapons, we had chemical weapons. It could have been multifaceted. We did actually have the threat of terrorism looming and, you know, a proxy attack that the Soviets could have launched. So, if somebody had, if, if somebody in the government back in these days, back in those days during the Cold War had said, yeah, we're going to uh, coordinate a response to this effort and it's going to be Piggly Wiggly, Sears, Roebuck, and IBM. They're going to be in charge of responding and everything you need, you just buy from them. People would have been outraged, absolutely outraged. And the economic models of the time weren't big box or big tech. Actually, IBM and, you know, uh, Sears and uh, Piggly Wiggly, those were pretty large stores, but most people actually got their hardware and their everyday food items from the general store, the dry goods store, the local uh, market, whatever. And, you know, to basically say the entire country has to shut down except for these giant globalist corporations and that you will get to, you'll have the privilege of purchasing all that you need from them after we've charged you for decades in preparation for an event like this is absurd. It's picking winners and losers. It will no doubt ensure the, the final death knell in the coffin of the small business. And no one's talking about it. You're, everyone is seriously just caught up in this false dialectic. I want to go back to work. No, we should stay at home. It's really deadly. No, it's just the flu. It doesn't matter. The virus is a serious problem. You've already paid to have the government respond effectively in situations like this. It's absurd that they're not. If you think about it from the perspective that I'm giving you, literally having to go buy everything you need from iTunes and Piggly Wiggly, you would think it's a joke. But since you already have negated your duty to your communities and you shop at Big Box and you basically worship Big Tech, nah, it's not a problem anymore. They can eat up the remainder of the market share in the United States. No big deal. I don't care. Well, it's just the new normal. And we have to get used to the fact that we have a techno oligarch that, that, you know, without Amazon, without Walmart, without these big box retailers that, you know, what's the point of small business, right? And, and you get into this mentality of, well, I want to support local, but then my local person's not open. So I have to, you're being forced and cattle fed into these, into these big boxes. And when, when we talk about businesses like Myron's, that, which is a manufacturing, and, and they're going to be already laying off. Uh, we talked about it in our last episode, laying off the majority of the workforce uh, while still trying to keep a, a demand. I wanted to get y'all's take on the small business retaliation that we're starting to see. So we're, we're starting to see police officers walking into hair salons, nail salons. We're starting to see armed guards at Dallas, uh, the, the Dallas nail salon that's making headlines right now. There are armed civilians, militia, if you will, that are standing outside in, you know, full boogaloo gear with their AR-15s and they're guarding nail salons so that people can go do their normal thing. And at what point does this small business retaliation 
mindset of come and take it come to a boiling point? Myron, I want to get your take on from the point of view of a business owner who's running a manufacturing, not necessarily, right? So right now people have the mentality of give me a haircut or give me death, right? Instead of liberty, give me death. What about manufacturers? What is what is the community in, in your area, the other entrepreneurs in your line of work, what are they talking about in terms of coming back to work and the harm that a reopening is doing or the harm that keeping everything closed is doing? I mean, like we talked about in the last episode, we're in a large Amish and Mennonite community. And one of the threats that I've been up against is that those communities are kind of their own community within a community. And they've been, uh, some of them specifically that are on in shops, they've been going back and bringing their people back in and starting to build product. And so they've been looking to me going, you know, because we do work for some of them. They're like, why aren't you, let's get going. Like, what are we waiting on? This isn't, this isn't right anyway. So let's get moving. And so there's a lot of stress for, for me and a lot of business owners that are riding that fence between because what do we do? (laughs) Do we just go back? Do we not? I mean, and for the first two weeks or so, it was kind of like, hey, it's that little bit of rest time, get the oils, you know, the machines re-oiled and we'll get get ready to rock and roll. Well, then, you know, that's May 20th, May 20th to the end of the month. And then it, it turns into after Easter, and then it turns into the end of April. Uh, then it changes to May 8th. And now May 8th, um, we've been told that they're opening 24 counties in Pennsylvania, but it happens to be the 24 counties that hold 10% of the population of Pennsylvania. So Woohoo. We're doing an act to get everyone off the governor's back to say, hey, we're opening businesses back up, but it's none of the counties that matter per se. And I'm sitting here going, what do I do? Because I've been telling my customers that we've been told May 8th, we're going to be able to start opening up. And so the pressure is getting harder and harder. And now I'm getting calls from even customers saying, well, I know that this other you know shop, they're starting back, even if they're not full production, they're producing products again. And so, like, what do you do? <laughs> um, and so now it's becoming even worse than just, is it a good or a bad move? It's now, well, so-and-so is doing it. Now you're being judged against others. Mm. Are they and doing that against do you, governor's orders? Are they, are they defying orders in terms of opening up beforehand? Yeah, I mean, they don't have waivers, and they're in non-essential business categories. So they're just opening up and, and doing what the nail salons are doing, what the hair salons are doing. Right. Right. But in manufacturing, for the most part, if you're running a small crew or you're running a crew of your own people, you might serve from your own people group, uh, unless someone reports you, as we've been hearing from the local police officers, they're not going to come. So the only way they're going to even question whether or not you have a waiver, which that's what's funny, there is no database. That has been released at least as of the last notice that I have received from when I talked to the local state representative's office. They don't even have a database to even go driving by a business and know whether they have a waiver or not. So unless they stop in, go in the door and say, hey, do you have a waiver or not? If they think you're non-essential, there's no way of them knowing whether or not you have a waiver or not. And because... One business that's a roofer got a waiver, one didn't. How in the world are they supposed to know without door knocking on every door? So they've 
in a lot of the areas, as I'm understanding in our local uh, area, they're basically saying, unless you get reported, we'll come check. You know, then they go check it out just to see whether or not you have a waiver. And, and there's times they'll show up at a business and they have a waiver anyway. And so some of these guys are like, well, we're working on the home farm or, you know, we have a shop there or we are not, you know, and we're not talking, we're talking what I call the 20 and under employee count. Um, and so you're already, you know, like maybe on the lower side of the radar, we're at a company size of 15 and under. And I'm just sitting here going, what do I do? Because the stress is now coming from so many angles. And the confusion is starting to become outrageous because just like the news, um, there are millions of people's viewpoints and we don't have enough time in a day if we want to get work done to go out and research the factual aspects of every piece of information that we're receiving. Because even just from our governor and, and people that are posting information about what's going on, it's enough to make my head spin. So I want to read a quote from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. The whole secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot fathom real intent. And when you start thinking about it from that perspective that we talked about this in in, in previous episodes that everyone's frustrated, everyone's confused, right? We get memes right now and, and video, fun videos that are talking about you can go outside, but unless you don't want to go outside, don't go outside. Children are not at risk unless they are at risk. You don't want to go to the doctor's office unless you really need to go to the doctor's office, right? So we're getting these huge mixed messages and it's, it's boiling over into this confusion and frustration. And and again, we're, we're seeing armed civilians showing up to governor's mansions. We're seeing armed civilians guarding small businesses and at what point do we say enough is enough, or, or does even our government say enough is enough, we're, we're taking our hands off of the situation and, you know, everyone just go back, go back to normal? Or at what point do they say, you can't do this? You can no longer peacefully protest. You can no longer show up to these establishments with your AR-15s guarding nail salons or manufacturing plants so that they can open. What is, what is the spillover that's going to happen? And, and are we in that two-week cycle of just watching and waiting, watching and waiting? I think that if the decks were even, you'd probably have a lot less pushback on all of this, right? Like if every single person, other than emergency response, hospitals, and actual medical infrastructure, essential, whatever that means, because that's so... That's been redefined so many times. If that was the only thing running. And back in the day, if you think about it, the world depended on us for their products. Now we depend on the world for our products. We produce virtually nothing and our entire system revolves around debt finance, right? So at that time, it was extremely important that the United States have a very large military presence, not just without, but within, to maintain order and to maintain. Um, cohesion and a, a way forward in times of emergency. We don't have that anymore. We had the BRAC base realignment where we would close, I don't even know how many bases across the country, so many, and really centralized our military authority and power in, in very 
key areas across the country. But, you know, we reduced our forces tremendously. You know, many less people are in the National Guard or in the Army Reserves or in the military as a whole. But what you would have seen in continuation of government, because that's basically what they've enacted, okay? We've talked about this before with Cheyenne Mountain and all of the bunker systems being occupied, war powers being declared. They're, they're, they're initiating continuation of government protocols. What would have happened back then was there would have been a coordinated military response on the streets. They would have kept people in their homes, everybody, unless you were a cop, a lineman, a paramedic, nurse, doctor, someone to meet the demands of the threat at hand, which would have always entailed some sort of medical response, right? Whether it be chemical, nuclear, biological, radiological, what have you, it would have always entailed a heavy medical response. We don't see that now. You know, one of the biggest problems and probably one of the biggest reasons people are frustrated is because it's just the government is picking and choosing winners and losers at this point, right? You've got people who are upset they can't open up their business. They're not essential. Some other businesses, it's created confusion. It's a lot of mixed messages. The reason it's like, we're going to give you some wishy-washy answers is simple. It's They want enough of a creep in the economy going forward that we can continue that debt finance cycle that allows us to consume product from the rest of the world so that we don't default on our debts, so that we don't have to do helicopter money, so we don't create an inflationary spiral, so that we don't tank our economy, so we can buy cheap garbage from everyone else, and we continue to be a consumer nation, and somehow that makes the whole world wealthy, and it makes us more in debt to ourselves. That'll only last so long. But basically... The, that's that's the reason why we're getting these mixed messages is we're, we're not a producer. We are dependent. Not only are we dependent on others, but we're dependent on ourselves to go into debt to ourselves to consume product to turn the wheels of the system. A system that is completely centralized, an economic model that the United States citizens are really not a part of. Any you know They're only a part of the system in so much that they go into debt and consume product, right? You don't have local industry. You don't have local production. The economy used to be us. We've had this discussion. It was us. Now it's global banks. You know, that's the economy. That's the economy of the United States. And the, the mixed message is simple and where it's coming from. It's coming from everyone because everyone has enough money to have the ear of a politician and to change policy. But you, you don't have that. You don't have that ability. You don't matter. Corporate people matter. They can amass enough money to completely silence you. No one hears your voice. If you say the wrong thing on Facebook, if you say the wrong thing on Twitter, if you say the wrong thing on YouTube, you're gone. If you say anything out of the line, out of line of the mainstream talking points, and they don't necessarily like it, they'll shadow ban you. They'll silence you. They'll get trolls to downvote you, whatever their techniques may be, and no one hears it. So it's, it's really hard not to have a mixed message because it's just not, it's not the message of the people. And, and we don't have enough facts to make solid decisions. We haven't been given the facts. We don't get to see them. They won't even tell us the unemployment numbers now. It's just we have extremely bad unemployment, whatever that means. You know, we don't really know that it's it's over 30 million, but it's just really bad. We don't know. Well now you're getting stories coming out of uh, certain Intel communities that are saying that Chinese operatives are going into these social media sites, going into these news publications, going into even our educational system and creating that confusion. They're intentionally helping the propaganda and helping prop up the narrative um, against the, the American narrative that, uh, you know, is being propagated by President Trump and, and 
the Intel community saying that this came out of Wuhan. And it begs the question, how long has this been in the waiting? How long have we been sitting on this? You know, we've said it a number of times at this point. How long have we been sitting on this paper tiger waiting for a, a hard wind to, to just annihilate it? And it's just, it's, it's a little unnerving that, uh, again, I think even in episode one, we talked about if this is fake, if this is something that has just been perpetrated to take out a sitting president for the 2020 election, that's a problem that it was that easy. That we went from the highest highs in the stock market. We went from a booming economy. We went from just roaring through uh, good times to in a matter of weeks, shutting down everything. And and again, like I think Myron, you you kind of alluded to this in in the conversation uh, last time. It's just your your mind can't even process it anymore. How quickly things have happened. It's gotten to such a point where I can't even remember two weeks ago what I was thinking. I'm just focused on what's happening right now. And, and we were talking about we need to be focusing on, you know, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, two months from now, three years from now. And, and they've gotten this at such a point where we're so rattled with information and all this, again, false dialectic and, and false narratives going back and forth, back and forth, open up, don't open up, to the point where people have just become apathetic. And we're at a standstill and we're at a stalemate, right? We talked about that in the last episode where, okay, we open up, restaurants are open, everybody come on in. We're, we're seating, we're sanitizing, we're cleaning, everything's peachy keen, come on in. Then you've got early adopters, if you will, who are one and two going out to eat. But then everybody else, the vast majority are just sitting back waiting. And they're the ones also saying, we're, we're about to have a second wave. And this is going to be the cause of the second wave because you opened up too early. And it's, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because you've opened up too early, you're testing more, and the numbers are going up. And so now you get to say, see, told you so. So I find it interesting because we're in a campground. And in Pennsylvania, they've allowed campgrounds to open up this weekend, private campgrounds. And um, the guy next to us here is a seasonal camper and they came just to kind of get their camper taken, you know, taken care of and getting ready for the summer. And so I just asked him what he does and he works in the ER. And um, he was saying about how the numbers have been dropping and all that. And I couldn't get an exact straight answer from him, but what he did say is that they had usually over a hundred and some people at their hospital per day, and they're down to under 60 coming in uh, total. And so it's actually been a drop, major drop. Um, But what I find interesting is, is that through the campground here this weekend, there's a vehicle from New York. And et cetera. And I'm just like, I, I just don't understand how this state by state thing is going to work out. Because if someone's here from New York, the mega hub of this, like, thank God they stay over there on their site. But you get my point, like across these state lines, like if, if we don't do this equally, what is what is going to be the scenario in the small business and even in, you know, in the safety of all of this as there is no uniformity? Well, and you're, you're going to start getting a lot of, well, it's unfair. Bob is open. How come I can't be? A, well, 
he has a certificate. Well, how do I get a certificate? It's not fair. I'm just going to open up anyways. And, and again, it's creating this animosity. It's creating this, this spiral of retaliation mentality where people are going to just get so fed up with it. And either we hit a flashpoint or things start to truly ease up. Things do go back to normal. But I just, I'm not seeing that yet. Because in Pennsylvania, we're now going through the, they're testing or they're going through and reviewing the waiver process because there have been too many businesses that have had the same um, safety plan in the same industry, in the same areas, and one had got approval and the other one didn't. And so now it's being, so now it's getting, and this is not even big, big to small, like this is small to small, meaning this is a mom and pop business against a mom and pop. And one um, person was on an interview, brought both of them on together even as competitors and did an interview together. And basically it wasn't, like rivalry it wasn't like one had more money than the other it was sheerly a process that never was developed or was broken around the waiver process and i think this unfortunately is going to set businesses against each other on the small business sector rather than i'm actually focusing on the big business against the small business which for me my number one focus has been and will stay on the big guys against the small guys because I believe that now what's happening is they want to create almost like a warfare between the, the small against small so that they can continue doing what they want to do on the big scale. That's just, that's where I'm at. Because the more I see the attacks happening between small business against small business, that's like, you know, it's like people turning on each other. It's like the community turning its back, you know, it's like turning against each other. And the that's the death of community. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what's doing is that that's allowing the larger to go faster, more, more furiously toward the goal of taking market share while the small guys are down here. And I can get caught in it pretty easy. Like, why are you open and why is he not? And they're you know, fighting out the small details because I know what it feels like to feel the unfair thing. Because it's like, well, they're up and operating or my, guys, my buddies, my com- competition in Ohio are allowed to manufacture now. How is that fair? That means all of my customers are easily ployed. You know, they can easily take them. I mean, to snatch them like wildfire right now because there's nothing holding them back other than my inability to manufacture and they can. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-design websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash newnormal and save 20% on your custom website today. This, this is what kills me about this whole situation. Because, like, martial law is bad, right? But there are protocols and there's laws of how you get into martial law and there's protocols for ending it. And, and they're clearly delineated. It's not a joke, right? We've, we've had martial law declared in this country many times. I don't want to see it. I'm a pretty libertine guy. Don't like seeing martial law. But I almost feel like if 
what I said earlier, where, you know, there were no winners and losers picked. Everyone shut down. The government was responsible for your food and for your safety. You listened during that time, stayed inside. We crushed the numbers, went back to work like China just did. It would be far less draconian than this weird technocratic bullcrap that's coming out. And this snitch nate we're building, which is the death of trust in the community, which ends America as we know it. We're a high trust society. We have an idea and mentality about ourselves that allows us to feel comfortable with our neighbors and within our community. We can still do that after martial law because we know that's a very extreme circumstance and there's a way in, there's a way out. With this police state, with this snitch society, with this change in culture, that's permanent. You're, the, the way of life that you had before never comes back. And if this virus truly is deadly after you've caught it and you supposedly have antibodies and you continue to have, to have vaccines and we continue to have outbreaks, you're going to see this crap forever. It's not, it's not just going to go away. It's going to become like flu season, except it's endemic. So we're going to have outbreaks constantly across the country at infinitum, you know, and it just continues to erode away at what it is or what it means to be an American and, and what our communities mean to us. It's going to further atomize the American into an identityless, uh, self-interested consumer, you know, just, just a product, just somebody who purchases product, just a mind to fill and, and, and just another, you know, cog in the machine. You're no longer a member of the community. You won't even trust your own family members. Yeah, and that's that's the really sad part. I mean, we, we were talking about just the fact that you know Myron, the the governor there, is is setting up essentially a, a, a snitch, a snitch state, and and it's getting to the point where businesses are turning on businesses or business owners, I should say, are turning on business owners. So this is an article from Dennis Prager, and it says our dress rehearsal for a police state. All my life, I've dismissed paranoids on the right the Ameri- that Americans are headed into communism. And the left, it can happen here, referring to fascism. It's not that I ever believed liberty was guaranteed. Being familiar with history and a pessimist regarding the human condition, I never believed that. But the ease with which police state tactics have employed and the equal ease with which most Americans have accepted them is breathtaking. And so he goes into a couple points on what a police state means. And a police state isn't necessarily a totalitarian state. America is not a totalitarian state. We still have many freedoms in a totalitarian state. You and I talking, or this article that I'm reading, would not be legally happening. We would be going against the state and even having this conversation. And if we were illegally published, then we would be imprisoned or even executed. That's a totalitarian state. So some of the measures that he, he lists in this article with regard to a police state, number one, draconian laws depriving citizens of elementary civil rights. We're already seeing that. Number two, mass media supportive of the state's messaging and depriving of those rights. So the New York Times, CNN, and every other mainstream mass media, they are serving at the cause of the state, and they're doing so over the individual's lives, much like Pravada in the Soviet government. Number three, use of police. 
and we've talked about this very early on in the show. We're seeing police officers go door to door, knocking on businesses. Do you have a permit to be open? Police departments throughout America have agreed to enforce these laws and edicts with what can only be described as a frightening alarm. After hearing me describe police giving summons to or even arresting people for playing baseball with their children on the beach, jogging alone without a mask, or worshiping on Easter while sitting isolated in their cars in a church parking lot, a police officer called my show. He explained that police have no choice. Where have we heard that? It was just my job, just doing my job. And then what we've been talking about tonight, the snitch society. How did the police dispatchers learn of lawbreakers such as families playing softball in a public park, lone joggers without face masks, etc., from their fellow citizens snitching on them? The mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, set up a snitch line whereby New Yorkers were told to send authorities photos of fellow New Yorkers violating any of the quarantine laws. Now, this is my own example. I have a former high school uh, classmate of mine who is in New York, and they put on their Facebook status, NYPD, come to such and such crossroad, come to this intersection. There are kids out with no masks. They are out here partying. They are not doing social distancing, right? So she didn't go as far as to call the police, as far as we know, but we're already seeing that mentality of turning each other in. Right. I I almost don't want to go to Walmart or any other location in the next three weeks because it's going to be this person wasn't wearing a mask. This person wasn't waiting 30 seconds before I went into the aisle and, and I need to report them. And we're getting to this point where we're getting these sideways looks, these crossways, almost holier than thou looks when when we're talking about masks versus no mask. And I don't know. I, I know that there was the anti-mask leak during the, the Spanish flu uh, epidemic. And we very well may be headed in that direction again, where people are civilly divided in whether or not they should wear a mask or not. They should be allowed to go in or not to any particular establishment. And and then on a state-to-state level, you're getting some states that are wide open. We've got the governor of Montana who's patting herself on the back, and, and I would say rightfully so in certain cases, that we didn't take these draconian measures. We didn't do these things. We didn't employ our police. And it's almost like a thumb at the nose at these other places. We're not doing this. We're We're so much better. And then you've got mayor of New York, uh, mayor of Chicago, who had a press release or a press uh, statement just the other day, where if you violate these laws, her words, we are coming for you. We will arrest you, we will cite you, and we will take you to jail if you do not comply with what we want for the safety of everyone else around you. I'm starting to hear some history repeating itself, Quentin, Myron. I, I just, it, it's, it's giving me a little bit of the goosebumps of, of sitting here thinking that in America, we're even having these conversations and I don't have Alex Jones sitting next to me. 
to kind of add to what Prager was saying, uh, a police state is not necessarily a totalitarian state, but it is the foundation upon which the totalitarian state is laid. But you cannot have a totalitarian state without a police state, without a secret police. There's nobody in history that did it better than Stalin. Or, or really, we don't actually know the full death toll of the Leninist regime and the Cheka, what they did. People can look into like the Holmador and some of the, uh, you know, genocides and um, concentration camps and the deaths that the KGB, the Cheka amassed. It's, it, it exceeds anything uh, else in history other than Mao. And right, how they built million. this, yeah, how they built this system of control was through absolute fear, right? Total fear of the state and the complete willingness of anyone who was living under that system to rat out anyone, their neighbors, their children, their parents, brother, sister. It didn't matter. No one was untouchable. We are, we're seeing that happen. And I I hate to beat a dead horse, but you know, the reason we don't have a, a stronger response from the federal government in a more uniform and authoritative response isn't necessarily because they don't want to. It's because they're not capable of doing it. You know, we had this conversation before we ever decided to start a podcast. And I told you, I told you that troops were probably needed and they were not going to come. And I'm not going to go into the reasons I gave you behind that. But I told you troops weren't coming and I had it on good authority that they weren't going to come. And if they did come, it would be too late. And if they were coordinated, it would be completely ineffective. It didn't have to be that way. The government knew that troops coming back from Korea could be potentially infected. They knew that they could have changed the force protection condition and, and, and changed the status of the bases, kept people on base and made sure our force was ready, you know, to be deployed. They just didn't do it. It's expensive. You know, they'd rather pocket that money that we pay them. And it's like the $6 trillion black hole that the defense department runs or whatever. It, it's, it's absurd. I would agree with Prager. I mean, I, I never really, you know, I can't say that. I, I kind of have seen, he comes from a certain age group where America, you know, he saw America at its height. I never really did get to uh, live in that. You know, I lived in the 90s and they were cool. You know, it was probably the last vestiges of America. It was, it was pretty awesome for, for like a, a hot minute and then it ended. But basically my whole life has been just witnessing our decline, right? So I kind of figured that, Growing up, that communism was a thing that we could actually be faced with. A totalitarian state actually could be real. I mean, I grew up watching things like Ruby Ridge, Waco play out, you know, uh, the response to the OKC bombing, Patriot Act, and the list kept going on and on. So this has always been a fear of mine. And, you know, when I was younger, I guess because I didn't have the philosophical background that I did now, I was always afraid of like martial law. I was like, oh, that's when it's going to happen. They're going to declare martial law and that's what it happened. And it was kind of a silly mentality because who are they calling to do martial law? Like your brother, you know, like your, your cousin in the National Guard? Like that's not going to happen. And the thing is, is, is people aren't even afraid of some 18-year-old kid who they kind of know in their local community, who's a National Guardsman, who's just trying to keep people safe. That's not super scary. What is really scary is some sort of horrible beast grid being developed to spy on you, and then your neighbor's just being complicit in that. That doesn't go away. That doesn't undeploy. There's no, there's no uh, you know, return from that. It, it, once that's deployed, 
that's permanent. The culture changes, the mentality of everyone changes. And then that, that will allow, if anything, look, if I hate to say it, but like something worse than the coronavirus could happen. You know, mind you, this is pretty bad. If this had occurred back in 1918, we'd have lost about a third of the world's population. So this is a pretty bad virus, but something worse than this could actually occur. If it does, you know, the government is going to love all of the powers they've been able to seize during this time because it's going to allow them to take even further control. And, and I really just feel that the unmeasured and incohesive response is actually more tyrannical than just if the government had its stuff together and had martial law. It's, it's almost like anarcho-tyranny. It's a tyranny by anarchy. It's a tyranny of choice. It's kind of like, you know, a, a, a tyranny of, of uh, indecision, you know? Oh, very much so. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't make up our minds right now. We don't know, do we want to go out? Do we want to open up our business? Do we want to hire back everybody we just laid off? It's, it's this just standstill. And you brought up the grid and you brought up what could happen next. So I've got, I've got two talking points we might want to get into. And one of them is related to Bill Gates going on. Uh, what was his name? He was on the daily show. Stephen Carell, not, not Steve Carell, but one of, one of the late night talk shows. And he basically said, what's next? He all but said, Bill Gates, you've been ahead of the curve for quite some time. You've told us about this five years ago, and we didn't listen. So if we were to fast forward five years, what aren't we listening to you about now? And Bill Gates' response was, I think the second wave is going to be a bioweapon, a bioattack. And if a virus isn't a bioweapon or a bioattack, what is? What are we looking for? And we have you know, October 2019, where he was one of the founding or the financiers behind Event 201. People who are in the conspiracy circles know what Event 201 is. The fact that it was a planned exercise on a pandemic, very much in the same characteristics of what we're looking at now with the COVID-19. And so when you have someone like Bill Gates, who five years ago did a TED Talk saying that our next big thing is, is a pandemic that we should be on the lookout for. He didn't talk about global warming. He didn't talk about climate change. He talked about a pandemic in a maybe 15-minute TED Talk. And now he's on every talk show. And apparently now he's, he's the de facto medical expert that we should be turning to for either vaccines or what, what, what happens next in our society. But his answer is the second wave is a bioattack. So where does that come from? Where, where are we looking to, to get protected from? And then the second part of that is President Trump activating the Army Reserve, no more than, I think, 200 um, in, in number, but they are being tasked with the protection of our infrastructure, our electrical grid. And so that then begs the question, that then brings up the mentality or, or, or even the, hmm, what, what, what could be the next attack? with a, an electromagnetic pulse. Do they try, who is they, and who are they trying to, or, or what are they trying to do by protecting? Is this shoring up? Right, and are they trying to shore up the, are they trying to shore up the loose ends of the fact that our grid was so 
fragile to begin with and it wasn't being protected, do we need to not read into this? But they, they happen within days of each other, right? So we have a bio attack. I, I told you this at the beginning. Like, the, my biggest fear is, you know, somebody takes down a grid transformer. Some bad actor, somebody, some, you know, some terrorist or some anti-government, you know, I don't know. It could be anybody. But if somebody did that right now, somebody took down a grid transformer, I think there's like a, a two-year lead time on those things coming out of Korea or China or something like that. We'd be toast. We'd be, and, the, and the virus would be completely unmanageable in that region, region wherever it occurred. You know, you would have wide-scale, you know, systematic collapse, and then you'd have cascading failures across the country. It would be just total chaos in minutes. Byron, what's your take on that? What's the, what's the next wave? More confusion, because I, I really believe that that's what this is all about confusion um when it comes down to what i think the next thing is i i'm 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 very distraught when those with lots of money are turned what i feel all of a sudden become the prophets the i mean prophets of the future and to me there's only correlation it's not coincidence it's literally a plan, a strategy that either they're being paid to do or they're funding to do. Because it's very easy to become a self-fulfilling profit when you're a billionaire. Correct. And it's like, you know, things about chips, things about vaccine, all these things that he's, that's being done by, you know, billionaires uh, or billionaire. Um, it, it's very disturbing and the control all of a sudden that he has is like, where did this come from and why do you have it? Yeah. And you start looking at the CEOs in late 2019, early 2020, that all started to resign for whatever reason it was. A bunch of sell, uh, stock sell-offs by Congress just before the announcement of it coming over to, to the United States, whether or not they had the information or not. But that story's dead. Nobody's talking about it anymore. It was a blip that on the radio. Hmm? So one of the senators uh, that was involved um, in the stock sell-off was uh, on the Security Council. and was caught on hot mic saying this was going to be something like or worse than the Spanish flu. Well, now we know because of the intelligence documents that were leaked. Last fall, our intelligence agencies had a reason to believe that this was uh, this virus was occurring in, in human-to-human transmission, the Wuhan region, right? So those dossiers would have been pushed to these people in the security councils and the intelligence committees these these congressmen had that information so it's not a coincidence they sold their stocks and that they you know this per, this particular individual says this is going to be something like or worse than spanish flu but coming out of the press conferences and this person would be in the know right coming out of the press conferences ah, it's the flu bro you know one to two percent sorry that's not the spanish flu that's not what it did you know 
And that was in a time where we were very much decentralized and people could feed themselves and we weren't fragile and we weren't dependent on other communities or other nations. No, not, not, not at all. And, and when you, it's very easy to look at all of that, everything that we're talking about today in, in this particular episode, and you, you can just sit and say, well, what, what is the point? What, what, what are we trying to do here? So when it, when it comes to that new normal, when it comes to figuring out what the next steps are, Myron, can you walk me through some of the things that maybe we didn't get to touch on in, in our last episode with you? What are some of the things that, assuming things start to relax, assuming things start to open up a little bit more freely, we're not pitting neighbor against neighbor, what are some of the things that you are doing with the mentality that you have to just move forward, to push forward, to be able to service your, your employees, but also your customers and the manufacturers that you, you work with, your clients? What are some of the things that you are starting to either consider or implement in your business, in your, in your personal and professional life? to get through these next few weeks? Well, basically, like we talked about a little bit earlier, either in this episode or in the last episode, is that every day there's something changing. And I have not been this worn out in a very long time. Because um, it feels like we're working. I mean, everything's at an outrageous rate of speed. And what starts to happen through all of this is, and it's only going to get worse, and that is I'm looking at how to protect the health and well-being of myself, my family, and our people. Because what's happening here is because there's this weird demand flow, um, not the proper amount of staff or not the willingness to bring them back on, it's really making sure that people stay healthy. So I'm really focusing a lot of attention on that. Because like we talked about in the last episode, I have a huge concern about a short-term um, swift uptick and then a crash. And so based on that, I don't want to put all of my apples in one basket. And so we've been very focused as, um, as a family, um, my wife and I on really looking at how do we make sure that all of our orchards are as strong as possible because we are in diversified industry. So we have, uh, rentals, um, property rentals in Tennessee, we have um, an outdoor furniture line. We have a woods and manu uh, plastics manufacturing. We have the coaching side of things. And we're also in the process of launching in retail. And the reason we're working on the retail side of it more than ever is because we don't know the story that's going to be told on how many retail, even though it's, it's going to be a, another company that we're just going to be involved in, we're looking to take more control because we're not sure what's going to happen with our brick and mortar or any business for that matter. And so for us just to sit back and go, well, we'll wait till they can reopen or they can do such and such. We're pivoting quickly, which is what I've been doing all day today is helping to get everything onboarded on that website and get everything rocking and rolling to take retail more directly involved. Um, and that's different than the major dot coms we're selling through to as a wholesale account right now, but it's literally dot coms that we're um, have a, a bigger control over because 
right now it's just basically I call it a delivery vehicle of a sales process more than a cyber takeover or a cyber big box. We're really looking at it as right now, what is a vehicle that we can have a next level control in? And so I just feel like, yes, I've been very energized, but it's been very energy consuming because there's the stress of who's carrying the snip that's out there, um, you know, dropping a bomb of, hey, so-and-so is moving over here or they're doing that or, you know, trying to get to poise someone against you. And so it's been very difficult to know what to say to who, how to say, like even when a customer calls in, are we open? We're not officially open and just refer to the governor's thing and no, right, we're not having our full staff back. So I'm, yeah. And, and that's the fear of living life right now. Like, who do you tell what? I don't know what side of the fence they're on. And I don't care as a human. I don't care what side you're on. I just need to be careful for the safety and security of my family. And so it's just made that very, very challenging. So it's just, it's overtime and overdrive right now. Um, and we're also looking at how can we offer services in any and all of our companies that can be considered essential. Because I believe this you're non-essential, you got to shut down is coming back. And I believe that we've been taught, we've been, we're being programmed right now mm. that if you don't learn how to play the game they want you to play the way you want it to be played, you will be shut down. I'm not saying I agree with it. All I'm saying is that I believe as a small business owner, if you're not looking at different platforms of how you can sell your products and services, if you do not look at how you can have an essential part of your business, because what they've proven is, is that as long as you have something essential and you can push that essential entity, whether it's a waiver approval process or an essential in the manufacturing or selling of it, because they've proven this, that the Walmarts of the world can have a store that only is one third essential and they can open 100% of the store. And so we're doing that. We're looking at and saying, how can we bring products to market in our business models to, to fortify our orchard? And we're looking to grow orchard because this isn't, you know, this isn't my principle, but uh, Coach has taught, um, taught me and my wife on, has helped us to understand the orchard mentality. And so right. what we're trying to do is have un- connected and unpollinated orchards. So what I, what I refer to that is, is that real, our, our real estate uh, rental properties that we have, they don't cross-pollinate with wood and plastic manufacturing at all, meaning they're not attached to each other. And so, yes, they mo- both may be impacting an economy, but they're not impacted on the same wave. <laughs> They're on different platforms. We're in different market spaces. We're working with different style of customers that aren't related. Where a woods and plastics manufacturing, that company manufactures, does manufacture our outdoor poly products that we have out there outdoor. So that's attached. So to me, that's cross-pollinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we're trying to grow into other industries with the woods and plastics that are not companies that we have any pollination with that are outside of maybe healthcare or looking into other industries that will help us to continue to keep cleaner lines in that pollination. You mentioned the fact that, I mean, everything you said is exhausting just to 
be be party to listening to everything that you're having to do. What are you doing to stay healthy and mentally ha- have that mental clarity? What are some of the things that you have been instituting again, personally and professionally, to keep yourself energized? Because I cannot imagine the hours that you're having to put in because of the industry that you're in that's been deemed unessential. So now you're having to you're you're taking that huge swing. We talked about this in, in your in your interview. You're taking a huge swing. You're not just pivoting. You are swinging for the fences, and that is exhausting. And when you're constantly swinging, when you're constantly tensed up, when you're constantly under stress like this, what are you doing to make sure that you are staying healthy, your wife, your children mentally are staying healthy and active and engaged, but then translating that into your business? How are you staying healthy? So that's definitely been a challenge right now. I mean, it's been a challenge that's almost exhausting to try to figure out how to stay healthy, <laughs> um, to be honest. And so um, one of the things that we're really focusing on right now is that one day of rest. Um, if we don't get that one day of rest, it's just, it's crushing. And so that's been a big, big focus. Number two, um, we've been really, from a mental side of it, um, and, and not for everyone, maybe it doesn't work for everyone, but for us, when we look at the bigger picture outside of our needs and we look at the needs around us. And so what does that mean? Um, if we only look at our woes and our problems and our issues, it all becomes about us. And so we are really passionate um, about why we're doing this. and. One of the things that we've gotten um, a commitment on with the new retail launch is that when we launch this, the first month, we're going to donate 100% of the profits um, to an organization in Texas that are helping to free girls from the sex trade. And that's what motivates us to continue pushing through in these outlets. Why? Because it's helping a bigger cause that we're passionate about and we have vision for. And so if it was only for our needs, that self that comes right back to self-centered. And that, in my opinion, is what demotivates. It's what crushes when you're in a time like this. But when you can put it outward, I believe there's superpower um, in energy because Every day I wake up and I'm like, dude, I just don't know if I can keep going. I look at my employees. What does this impact to them? What is this going to do for our goal um, to invest and to, to help these girls and, and young kids in the sex trade? You are going, I mean, it's, we have to have something bigger than ourselves. And that's, that's huge. And you, you brought up a day of rest and, and not to get into a, a theological conversation on, on day of rest, but we have tried and failed many times when it comes to the day of rest of staying off social media and not reading the headlines. And it's something that came up very recently with, within my family is like no screen time on, on the day that we're resting, unless we're watching some sort of uh, study or, or looking at, um, you know, something that's going to better us rather than just sitting there scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Have you implemented anything that before this or, or even during this where your family has no social media on a certain day of rest? You're not looking at the news. You're not looking at the headlines because even information fatigue is a real thing. 
where you're just taking in and consuming consuming data you're just constantly putting yourself under stress mentally may not be physically but you you you'll get to a point where you burn out and again to to that point you get to a complacency uh, cycle where you just stop caring you you start reading these headlines and you stop caring yeah, so I would say that we've made a pretty broad stroke on that. I wouldn't say that we have a day where we don't spend time on, um, but we don't have TV. Uh, we have TV, but we are not. We don't watch TV from the news side. Um, we don't get or have subscriptions to any of the papers. Um, and yes, Facebook in itself can be a death sentence. I get it. Uh, but that's really our only connection to the outside community at this point. And I've been a, I've been kind of a, an anti-news guy for a lot of years. So it's not new just because of this. I believe that what we focus on is what we get more of. And when we feed on fear, we, we basically were watering fear. And when we water fear, it's like turning a sprinkling can and we're watering um, our flowers and wondering why weeds are growing because the fear in the water, which is more seeds of, of, um, of weeds, are being poured right in and around the flowers that we're trying to water to grow. And so some of these things that are going on around me if you were to bring them up, I wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. And it's because if it if I haven't seen it on Facebook, I haven't seen it really anywhere um, because we've just shut off those media outlets because we have a choice right now, I believe. And I'm not trying to bury my head in the sand and say it's going to go away because I, because I don't go to them. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if I allow, if I continue watering fear, that's the sprouts I'm going to continue to nurture. And we have a choice, I believe, and that is being responsible or being fearful. And fear drives that. And so that is why the toilet paper issues, that's why all of a sudden all the shelves are are taking of meat. Because a person, and I'm not saying true or false, but the news media knows how to put out the right bait and the right headlines to create fear, to take basically to fulfill the prophecy. And that is that I could put right now, anyone of power could pretty much say anything and it would happen. They can say that we're going to run out of flour and we're going to run out of flour because everyone would crush the stores and buy the flour out because they're watering the fear. And so that's just how how we've been trying to avoid that. We don't have a social, a social media free day. That's about the one thing we really don't good. have. But the news, I'm done, man. I mean, I'll, I'll try not to go on Facebook at all first thing in the morning because that sets the stage of then how that day is going to go based on what I feed it. You have to think to yourself, too, if they're seeding dissent and lack of trust and fear of you know one's own community and your neighbor, why wouldn't they? If I mean, like me and Sal said in the past, you know, if 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 the media caused this as a hoax to hurt the president or hurt the system, very unacceptable, but it also, that, that gives credit to the fact that, I mean, just us making that statement, it, it's very possible, you know, that they do have enough power to cause something like that. And I know for a fact that if the media says it'll happen, it will. The, the stock market won't crash until they tell you we're in a recession. You know, 
there won't be a run on pork until they tell you that we're almost out of it or, or, or whatever, you know? And are they claiming these things to agitate a response in order to further sow seeds of doubt and distrust and fear in the community and it's, a, it's definitely irritation uh, with one another? A death of trust right now. I mean, that's something our coach has been talking about. We're going to have Hans Johnson probably talk about this very, very soon, is the death of trust. They, they are fomenting this seed. They're watering that seed of distrust and discord. And, and we've talked about it in this episode of they're giving the attention to these rise-ups in, in Michigan. They're giving attention to these governors who are overstepping their bounds. And it is, it's that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? There's going to be a meat shortage. There's going to be a food supply chain issue. And what happens? The next day, the president has to declare that, no, we're not going to do this. We're not, we're not going to have to do this. So it's this just constant back and forth in this ping pong match between the media and reality. Really, I, you know, there's intelligence assets within the media, not just like Mockingbird stuff, right? But they, they have people that go out and they're journalists, they're investigators, they go collect intel. They have, you know, a pulse on America. And, and the fact of the matter is we, we were going to have shortages and we were going to have problems. We, we now won't know how severe those problems actually might have been because the media has made sure of that, right? They made sure that whatever problem we could have had, whether it be big or small, has just been made worse. You can guarantee that. You know, that's, that's a serious problem. We, we have, you know, Sam Adams said only immoral, you know, people would basically keep this country uh, or, or were capable of sustaining this republic. And you could look at moral and no matter what your perception of morality is, a r- responsible would be a good word that everyone could agree. There's a, there's a lot of re- morality and responsibility. If, if this is a hoax, then at this point, we may not even be responsible enough or a moral enough people to be able to handle free press. I, I mean, seriously, that's, that's a really scary thought. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you have to really question a society and a people that allow situations like this to occur to them or, or to be participants in it, right? You have some culpability in that, whether you were a part of it or you just went along with that. The death of trust is stemming from an overall collapse in moral fabric and personal responsibility. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think that you can correct that with policy. Well, I know you can't, you can't correct that with policy. You can't correct that with federal response or state response. You know, that's, that's a personal issue. And that, that comes from the death of the family, the nuclear family, the death of, you know, social cohesion, probably the church, you know, I would say is, is largely um, involved in that. I hope at the end of this, we really have a hard look in the mirror and maybe we step back from this police state mentality that we found ourselves in and we really examine what it is to be an American and what makes an American, what constitutes that? Because whether people were on the left or the right at one point in time, there was a, a, a considerable amount of morality and personal responsibility built into both of those worldviews. And I think it's just absent right now in today's society. You, you brought up a, an interesting conversation about, or a conversation piece about what makes an American. Myron 
as we start to close this off, as we come to a come to an end with with this particular conversation, what do you see as as the potential for the new America to come out of this? What is the renaissance that happens for Americans, assuming again that we have a positive outcome, that we don't, even if we do have a second wave and a, and a second uh, crash, and we have an opportunity to come out of that. What do you see for small businesses, for entrepreneurs like yourself? What do you see in the opportunity of this new America, this mindset shift, this new normal that that they have the opportunity to take advantage of? Yeah, well, we're not going to get out of this without scars. And so those scars are going to live on um, probably for generations. Um, and specifically, depending and also depending on how hard the second wave is, and I'm just speaking as if there's going to be another one because I really believe that we're going to have it. Right. Um, how big, how small—that's all to be debated. But no matter how much I do or don't like the concept of what I'm about to say, I believe it's a reality, and that is that we're going to have to accept the new normal. The old ways, because when trust is broken, when all these things, when all this happens, it doesn't just go back to go back to an old way anytime soon. And so there are a lot of advantages, I believe, in small business um, coming out of this because the training of working virtually the ability not to travel just to have a 10-minute meeting because before we could demand someone to travel across the nation for something was not even necessary. Those things, I believe, are in advantage of a small business to be able to grow quickly because they can leverage and go fast. And so what we're trying to do and what I would encourage all small business um, owners and businesses across America to do is um, be proud of what you do, leverage what you do, and pivot. And don't say no to anything right now. Um, don't even say no like I'm battling through right now saying that I won't reopen um, before the date that the governor says that I can't reopen. Because right now I'm looking at it as almost being a life or death of this year for us. And that could impact whether or not we're ever going to be able to go back in business. My case in point is that if we've now said as of May 1st that May 8th non-essential businesses can't open, I know, you know as well as I do, that that's not going to change for sure for seven days, which means they haven't changed anything without a seven-day extension minimum. That puts us at May 15th. I already know what's coming. They're going to bump us out till memorial, end of Memorial Day. That bumps us through to June 1st. My seasons, we're already on taper down by June 1st. And so diversifying what we're doing so that we can continue to have something when we come back from this, I think is super important. But also making hard decisions and saying, am I going to stand up for my rights? Am I going to stand up for what? my family needs and for my employees' families. These are challenging times, but my, my word is we need to know when enough is enough and we need to know what's best for our business, for our employees, and we need to be willing to do it, not just in opening up, but in everything that we do. We cannot 
bee puppets. Entrepreneurs and American small businesses were not designed on puppetry. They were designed on hard work. They were designed on sweat equity. They were designed because someone had a dream. And right now, the dream is trying to be killed. And we have to stand up, rise up, and do something about it and make sure the dream stays alive. You talk a lot about the orchard in in your last statement. And it's imperative that people understand that concept. And I'm really excited to to have someone like Hans Johnson and yourself who are going to confirm that message to to our listeners that growing an orchard right now, having the seed mentality, not eating your seeds and not just consuming, 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 looking for ways to be leaner, to be absolutely efficient in everything that you do. And then when you get seed bearing fruit, then you replant those seeds, you reinvest those dividends in your business, in yourself, in your education, and making sure that you're set up so that when we do get out of this, when we do have the opportunity to open back up, that you're not left in the dust for all intents and purposes. If you're not taking action now, I don't know what's in store for you other than another breadline for you or the potential of long state dependency. And, and that's, that's a tough reality. When, when you've become accustomed to your way of life, you, know, you see some of these affluent small business owners and they've been deemed unessential. They've built a life around themselves uh, that's extravagant at times, a lot more spending than they really should be, any of us should be. And they're having to cut back in, in certain ways that that's not comfortable for them. I think it's going to take a lot of uncomfortable moments and uncomfortable conversations for the reality to hit some people. I think there's still a lot of people who are not taking this as seriously as they should have been. Right? They're just going along. Oh, here's another two weeks. We're, we're shut down for another two weeks. Uh, I guess they're just going to extend it again. Well, at least they're giving me a $2,000 check every month. So I guess I don't really ever have to go back to work. The renaissance that's possible, Walden, one of our guests that we had on early in, in our episodes, brought up that, that same fact is that we have an opportunity to have a renaissance. And if you take away from any of these uh, interviews that we're having, is that we want to encourage you to be constantly planting seeds to have that orchard ready so that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, whatever it might be where you are in your timeline, you have something to fall back on. You have something that if you pick the fruit off of it, you're not going to starve tomorrow because you pick the fruit off of it. Myron, I want to thank you so much for joining us again for part two of this interview. We're going to leave the close, closing comments with Quentin. Thank you. I really wanted to have you back on because, you know, you and I seem to be on the same page with what's coming for small business. It really scares me. You know, I wanted to have you on in particular because the United States used to be a manufacturing nation. We weren't just a consumer nation. We manufactured the, the highest quality goods for the entire world, you know, and you're still a part of that reality. And I think it's very important for people to take very seriously what you're saying, where you're coming from as a small manufacturer, because that is. Every large manufacturer in the United States started out as a small manufacturer. And you're not even you know, that small necessarily. 
and the potential for a new Ford or General Electric or Westinghouse or RCA, that right now, this is the deciding point in American history for the entrepreneur and for the manufacturer and the small business going forward. What our government allows to happen and what they do and the decisions they make today will determine whether we have any of those businesses ever come out in our lifetime again. And they could be crushed or nurtured right now. And the ball is in their court. And we can only do so much. We and we, you know, the, the average manufacturer or small business owner really needs to take your advice to heart, needs to listen to it. Because if they're not preparing for it, if they're not preparing for it mentally, fiscally, and materially to come out of this with an exit strategy, there's no chance for them to ever become or, or reach the potential that they could have had. But I, I really wanted to thank you. Your perspectives were were on point and uh, I appreciated everything you had to say. I enjoyed it, guys. It was fun being back on again, for sure. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The New Normal. If you're interested in subscribing, please check out our YouTube channel where you can see our Zoom casts and actually see our live interaction as, as it was happening, see our funny faces, see us drinking our uh, Bloody Marys at times. But please consider going to newnormalpod.com. You can download us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, anywhere you like to listen to, to your podcast. We would encourage you to go to newnormalpod.com forward slash TWF, where we will be giving away two free copies of our upcoming guest's book, The True Wealth Formula, Mr. Hans Johnson. We're looking forward to that very much. And with that, stay safe and welcome to the new normal.